All right. Well, welcome to another Fair Game podcast. Hello, Mike. Hi, Lee. How are you? <laughs> Good. We have another amazing and special guest. Yes, we do. Mike? Someone who I have recently been on his podcast, so this is this is turnabout now. Uh, hi, John Atak. It's wonderful to have you on with us today. Yeah, it's it's fabulous to be here, and I can get you back for being on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the deal? You do my podcast, I'll do your podcast, but I won't that do my podcast if you don't do my podcast. That's how it works. That's how it works in this world. And John, what is the podcast? What what's the name of it? Uh, John Atak, family and friends on uh, YouTube and various podcast channels. Okay, and what is it about? Well, it it started out being about psychological manipulation mainly, and and how to avoid it, and then it sort of wandered off into talking about Scientology quite a lot. Well, how and, can you not? Uh, how can you not? Because it's such an incredible <laughs> subject, and it's about you know, novels I've written and paintings I've made and music I'm involved in with my kids. It's it's a family channel. Oh, it's great. All family friendly. You know. Love it. Good. I hope people, um, <laughs> you get some listeners from this. But, yeah, um, so too. Yeah. So, John, thank you for being with us. Why don't you tell us your um, your Scientology story, how you got involved, how long you were in Scientology? I, I was 19 years old. I came home from uh, a tour in the south of France where I was playing drums and found that my girlfriend had disappeared. And um, it turned out that she was running off to New Zealand with one of our friends, as people do. And um, <laughs> I got very upset and um, being abandoned. And uh, somebody, had, a friend of mine, had taken a copy of Hubbard's Science of Survival out of the library because he was a big fan of the Incredible String Band. And then he found he couldn't read this book, and I ended up reading it, and I walked in from there. Um, I was involved for nine years, always as what is called public, never on staff. So I wasn't humiliated or abused. And so far, I've yet to meet anybody else that that's true for. Right, um, right. Yeah, you so seem to be a very rare person who is... Yeah. And it, it, <laughs> well, yeah, well look, John, I, I got to say, a little later on, the humiliation and abuse began. Yeah, and you, you had some personal interest in that, Mike. <laughs> Exactly. I was going to say that. I, I guess we should bring this up later, but I, I really do want to make a point of this because, Mike, uh, you uh, you guys were not friends. You guys were not. Uh, you were going after John later uh, in yeah. in his. And I was oh, friendly. Very, very much so. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So that I, you, I, that I you even ma- went all the way to his house in Nottingham with Warren McShane to put the squeeze on John or attempt to put the squeeze on him unsuccessfully. Um, but there was a lot of, a lot, he was, he was for a time, a, a definite high on the hit list of the officer of special affairs and RTC because of his involvement with the quote independent movement and the quote, theft of the uh, the knots materials and various other things. But we're like okay. really jumping ahead of ourselves at this mm. point. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, yes, you are, Mike. And you're using yes, a you lot are. of, you're using a lot of Scientology nomenclature that people don't understand. You said RTC. Nobody knows what that is. No one knows mm. what knots is. And so if people that's are got, that's why, tuning that's why out. That's I've got you here, Leah. Right. So that I could interrupt you. Under control. 
And then you could- Religious Technology Center is RTC, David Miscavige's organization that is at the sort of top of the Scientology hierarchy and is supposedly responsible for maintaining the purity of L. Ron Hubbard's, quote, technology. And Knotts is the uh, level on the Scientology bridge to total freedom that is up at the top where you've paid a lot of money and spent a lot of time to get there. And you, um, I'm not, that's, that's good enough for this. You know, the, okay. the first thing that I realized in writing a book about the history of Scientology, uh, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, was that reading the books that already existed, and there were already about 14 of them then, that you had to avoid the words because right. otherwise you were going to just spend forever explaining what new era Dianetics for operating Thetans was or something like that. Right, right, a, exactly. A language jungle with two 600-page dictionaries to confuse you. Coming from a man who said that you would harm people if you had a misunderstood word, you know, words you right, exactly. understand and there he is giving them to you. Right. Well, you know, Scientology, as as cults do, have their own nomenclature, their own dictionaries, and you have to learn a whole new language. And but there's uh, nothing nothing like Scientology out there in terms of the amount of terms that, that Hubbard redefined. And he then wrote propaganda by redefinition of words, explaining how you manipulate people by redefining words. Or words that he invented. And it, and it's an incredibly clumsy language, isn't it? Scientologies. It's it's about Dev T and Q and A and all of these bizarre. And it's things. so funny when I explain like what Dev T is to people, like you know, in in the real world, you know, they are always like, "Oh my God, it's an amazing word! I love that!" You know, yeah. <laughs> like as a joke, they they start to use it. But um, <laughs> so and John, I, uh, now that you mentioned the book, so you did write a book called "A Piece I of did. Blue." Yeah, so a yeah. piece a piece of blue of blue sky. Yeah, and the unexpurgated version is called let's sell these people a piece of blue sky there's still a rogue publisher publishing the original edition which um there were 60 passages that we had to paraphrase because of a strange ruling in the u.s now they're all back in and about another 40 things from hubbard's private letters uh, harassment directives that he wrote this this kind of thing and where but, can people uh, get your book uh it, it's available on amazon um and on kindle um, and and as always, I shall have a link to that on my blog and at fairgamepodcast.com. Oh, you got it right, Mike. I did. <laughs> I got it right for once. <laughs> You're going to put it on your list I, of recommended reading this time. Yes. Oh, it's it's not there, John? It's not there. Oh, absolutely. I'm Mike, sorry. Mike, are, are you still oversight. bitter? No, I, with I, I mean, are you still trying to attack... I'm, Poor John, yes. when you're I'm not still... in Scientology anymore, you're being very covert about it now, even though you claim to be out. Why do you not have John's book yeah. on it's your a list? It's form of harassment, isn't it? Mark? I agree, John. It's, it this is. is so yeah. fucked up. It, I, I'm seeking to destroy him utterly. Yeah, covertly, by not selling my book to people. <laughs> Mike, will you list his damn book on your Recommended. Of course, of course. Of hey, course. by the I way, didn't is even my realize book? It wasn't by there. the way, is my book on there? Yes. Oh, okay, we're good. Yep. Um, I hope so. <laughs> you bastard! <laughs> It'll I be mean, on there before the end of this podcast. If it's got gotcha. right top of the list. I, hope. <laughs> um, I, I spent nine years in Scientology. I, I was a public member. I did um, five of the operating Thetan levels or the superhuman 
levels. Um, there were only seven at that time. There are only eight now. I um, have to say, can I interrupt you again for one moment? Surely, yeah. I have to say, for somebody who was in Scientology, the short amount of time, and when I say nine years, I mean for rel- yeah. a relatively short time for a Scientologist, a yeah. because it takes most Scientologists their whole lives to get up to the confidential levels of Scientology. And so that you did it in the nine years is pretty, it was seven pretty years, impressive. Seven years in, yeah. Pretty amazing. But it was a lot, it was a heck of a lot cheaper back then. Uh huh. Um, right. You know, and I, I think the, the kind of half a million dollar price tag has made it, you know, slightly less accessible. Right. Um, I, I think I, you know, I paid 2,000 pounds for. Oh, wow. In fact, actually, in the yeah. whole time I was involved, my total expenditure was nine thousand pounds in nine years. Oh, no wow. way! Yeah, wow. Yeah. And so the reason why we're a little bit uh, uh, stunned by this information is because Scientology, for those who who claim it's just like any other religion, Mike mentioned the Bridge to Total Freedom. You guys can look that up, Scientology Bridge to Total Freedom, and you'll see there's a, uh, a preset steps that are required of all Scientologists. They're not optional um, uh, to, to, to be able to be in Scientology. Uh, you have to pay in advance for your services for your eternity. Um, <laughs> and so, like, like John said, uh, those prices only go up and they are mm-hmm. preset prices like any other business. Um, you have to pay in advance. And if you pay, you're forced to pay in advance. You can't even walk into a counseling session without having seen what they call um, registrars, aka salespeople of Scientology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not allowed to walk into any auditing room, counseling room of Scientology without having prepaid mm-hmm. for that service. And they're paid in blocks. So if you pay in advance, what you're forced to do, you that and you decide to leave Scientology. By the way, you don't get that money back, and they no, have, you have to you have to sue them if you want your money back, even if you haven't used it. You have to, well, good luck. I, I, good luck. I wish that were true because there's another part, which is you have to sign a contract that says you will not sue, and mm. that you will take your your request to have your money back to a Scientology quote-unquote arbitration, which is really just another Scientology uh, uh, procedure or uh, I don't even religious, know. What, like, religious right. It it's, a, it's a religious procedure. Right. <laughs> and yeah. you have to submit yourself to their quote-unquote justice where they will decide you don't deserve your money back. And that's the end of it. Absolutely <laughs> fair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You'll be given a fair trial, and then we'll hang you. Right. It's exactly. one of those systems, you know. But the, but yeah. but in Scientology, you are already found guilty if you are labeled a suppressive person, and if you have spoken out against Scientology abuses, then you are already labeled an enemy. So they're and, not even allowed to talk to you. They will literally cover their ears when you start talking. That's how insane this this pers- this farce is. But there is no such thing as a Scientology arbitration. But anyway, so, so, and by the way, good luck finding a lawyer because how many hundreds of people over the years have contacted, I'm sure you too, John, contacted you saying, look, I have 40,000 on account in a Scientology organization or 10,000, 20,000, some 100,000, 200,000, and I can't get my money back and it would save my life. Just yeah. and they're not allowed to even contact the Church of Scientology because they've been labeled an enemy, mm. 
And the lawyers basically laugh and go, it's going to cost me that much to even pick up the phone. What are you kidding me? You have $50,000 sitting there. I can't help you. You want to give me a million dollar retainer? I'll try to help you out. And there are thousands and thousands of people who have hundreds of millions in sitting on an account in the Church of Scientology. So if a lawyer wanted to ever get a hold of an amazing case or the IRS ever wanted to do their jobs, Hmm. um, might want to look into that. Anywho, back to you, John. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Well, I, so, I worked, you know, I, I mean, I, I left Scientology. I, I trained. I was a class two auditor, a Dianetic auditor, various things like this. So I'd you're a Scientology the, counselor yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. He uses the term that is otherwise used for an accountant, uh, the auditor, who will certainly audit your accounts for you. Yes. Um, and as you said, I mean, when I got in, it was six pounds per hour, about 10 bucks an hour. And by the time I left, it was 20 times that much. Nine years later, one hundred and twenty pounds an hour, um, and in fact, most of what I spent, I spent in the last year that I was involved. But I, I left because I thought Hubbard had had gone; he was dead, or he'd been taken over, and we had to take Scientology out. And about three months after I left, I left in October '83. I had this package of material dumped on me, uh, collected by a guy called Michael Lynn Shannon, and it had come via the Boston attorney Michael Flynn to me, and it absolutely proved without doubt to me that Ron Hubbard was a liar. Why? And, uh, I did a kind of shortcut there, which I was surprised other people don't tend to do. He's a liar. He says honesty is sanity. Therefore, he's insane. Um, right. And this isn't the road to truth. And I, it, it took me a few weeks, but I found myself at the middle of the independent movement, saving Scientology from the mother cult, the Church of Scientology, but not actually believing in any of it anymore. And my function became a bit like Mike's, uh, except I was on the other side. I was defending the independents from Mike and others who were attacking them with no real interest anymore in Scientology itself, you know, other than the history of it. Well, let me just ask you this. So so you decide that you read something and you, you see that, that, that Hubbard and Scientology and Dianetics is a complete... Uh, farce and lie, uh, lie, full of lies and full, psychotic. I mean, the psychosis, the neurosis, I don't even know a label for <laughs> Dianetics. It, it was so insane. But, uh, and it's being, it's a science of the mind is what, is mm. what it calls itself. And and it isn't any such thing. And, and Hubbard makes crazy claims, uh, calling it a science and people believed it. I believed it. You believed it. Mm. Um, but so now you, you, you walk away from the church of Scientology, but you still believe in Scientology and believe that people who believe in the technology of Scientology should be separate from the organization. Is that what you're saying? Initially for a few months, I I really did believe. Okay. Hang on a second. Now, Mike, can you explain to our listeners why that is not okay? Why can't, because Catholics don't need to go to a church to pray. I mean, most people of real religions don't need to go into any place to actually call themselves whatever they're calling themselves. Why is Scientology different here, Mike? Uh, Because like all good businesses, Scientology protects its intellectual properties, i.e. 
the trademarks and copyrights of Dianetics and Scientology and everything and every term is trademarked and every piece of writing by Hubbard is copyrighted and they enforce those copyrights vigorously because those copyrights are a source of revenue. And in order to use the materials of Dianetics and Scientology, one has to be authorized by the Mother Church okay, to but use that doesn't those sound, materials. But that doesn't sound bad, Mike, that somebody would try to, to protect their intellectual properties. Businesses do it all the time. Absolutely. So and why that, is that that's a problem? The point. This Scientology, is a, this Scientology is, is the first supposed religion to use the courts to protect its trade secrets. And just to amplify that, there are between two and 3,000 trade and service marks registered by Scientology, including, my favourite, the friendliest place in the world. You can't use that expression. <laughs> it's actually uh, in Florida, the friendliest place in the world. Um, <laughs> where, where and you're not talking died. about Disney World. We're talking about the Flagland Base in <laughs> we Clearwater, are indeed Florida. We're talking about the Flub or Flagland Base, yeah. Got you. Um, so the uh, but yeah. but 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 further to to what you guys are saying because it just sounds legit that they would be protecting their trademarks. It's really well, it's like the Catholics saying you can't use the word Jesus and them suing the Anglicans for using the word Jesus and saying that's our trademark. I'm sorry, you've got to call him something else. Right, right but but the and you can't have a mass. And you, you can't, can't, hang on. You can't read no. the Bible. No. Or or have the Bible as a part of your practice because we got that and we mm. copyrighted it. Yeah, and you so, need to pay us ten percent of your income if you're going to read it. Right. So let's say you believed in Scientology and because, like you said, John, you are a trained Scientology mm. counselor. If you wanted to train somebody without paying, you know, like you said, a half a million dollars and you wanted to administer Scientology that you thought was helpful to another human being outside of Scientology, give it to them for free or charge them a very small amount of money for that service, Scientology says you're not allowed to do that as a parishioner. Ron Hubbard in 1955 wrote an issue called The Scientologist, a manual on the dissemination of material. And in it, he talked about any practitioner who's not licensed. And he said, if possible, he said the law can be used very easily to harass. If possible, ruin him utterly. Anybody who practices without being franchised and licensed by the Scientology organization. And that's what they've set out. That was 1955. That's what they've set out to do with any competition since. Except, of course, where David Miscavige has made deals. So you have the Institute for Research into Metapsychology, for example, started by Dr. Frank Gabodi, Sarge Gabodi, he has a personal deal with David Miscavige, um, which sadly I was on the edge of, where they're allowed to practice Scientology without a license if they're registered with the Institute for Research into Metapsychology. But and that's it's a Scientology. And that's a Scientology organization or affiliation. They basically were people who it started with David Mayo. Um, Ex-Scientologist. Sarge Gabodi, setting up an organization that initially just delivered Scientology and then oh, they decided oh, that the upper levels were not good for you. And I remember arguing with them for weeks over this, trying to say you've really got to stop telling people they're infested with little spirits and all of this kind of stuff. And they stopped doing that, the upper levels of the bridge, but they're probably still out there 
doing Dianetics and grades and things like that, believing that these are effective and helpful, which indeed they are not. They're actually very dangerous ways of taking somebody's mind over. Of, co- of course. Now, the, I, but, I just, but the have, other, I just but, have to say one thing here that I think is really important, which is, you know, this is the Fair Game podcast. And the beginning of Fair Game came about because Hubbard wanted people who had quote-unquote stolen his materials Mm. and were using them in an unauthorized fashion Mm. and making money out of it to be destroyed. And that was the start of the use of the term fair game. It, It didn't exist before them. Fair game is a term that originally meant to go after those who are practicing Scientology without uh, authorization of Hubbard or the church. And he very specifically says that you can destroy such people in, in the fair game issue that he wrote in, what, 1965? Right. Uh, you yeah. you right. can lie to now, them, you can sue them, cheat, sure, do what sure. you like with them. They're, they're non-human. They, they don't have rights anymore. It's also very interesting that when he talks about the suppressive person, that in the issue where he talks about that, he says the anti-Scientologist, the antisocial personality. So he uses a psychiatric term, antisocial personality or psychopath, and says that's the same as being an anti-Scientologist. So if you have bad thoughts about Ron Hubbard, then you are an enemy of all life. You are a destructive human being. And that and little link is made. And, um, sure, and, and should be destroyed, which is the viewpoint of all Scientologists, that if if a, an enemy of Scientology passes away, they literally celebrate. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, it's hideous. It, it's a horrible. And I think the most, probably the most dangerous thing about Scientology is the eradication of compassion, that, that it's a way of systematically taking away people's sympathy for other human beings and making them narcissistically selfish. And it works very well, you know, to do that. Oh, but totally. The, the problem is that that's not actually a, a pro-social thing that is anti-social in and of itself. So you're creating suppressive people. I mean, especially when you're talking about the upper levels of Scientology, the confidential levels. Yes. Like you said, John, you, you learn in Scientology that you are infested with um, spiritual Demons. beings and, and none of your thoughts are your own. And most of uh, what you think and feel uh, is from these um, spiritual beings that were your body is composed of and your thoughts are composed mm-hmm. of all illnesses are these these spiritual beings being in your body and so when you get rid of them supposedly through scientology technology you you cure yourself of cancer of any kind of any ailment so that's why scientologists um believe that they are healing themselves through yeah through i mean one of the most po- poignant accounts i've ever scene was Brown McKee talking at the Clearwater hearings in May 1982. He'd been a Scientologist for 24 years. When his wife got cancer, he went down to the flag land base and said, what do we do about this? And they said, oh, I'm sorry, we can't help you. But here's an address in Mexico for you to go to. It wasn't the Hoxie Clinic, but it was one of these clinics. And he said when they got there, the surprise was that the waiting room was full of Scientology OTs, people who had got to the top of Scientology and when now, because probably just because they hadn't gone to the doctor straight away, because they believed that they could use this, you know, mumbo jumbo to cure it, 
they'd ended up in the waiting room in this clinic in Mexico. Exactly. And my point is always that Scientology is, is, um, gives a medical advice and uh, without, I mean, is operating in a way, calling Scientology a science. L. Ron Hubbard claiming that he was a scientist, that he's a decorated war hero. He sets mm-hmm. himself up as a legitimate scientist and somebody who, who went to college. He, you know, you, you have this idea of this man that he has a bachelor's degree. Like, right, Mike? That's the way L. Ron Hubbard sets himself PhD. up. PhD. Doctor. Yeah, yeah. PhD. Dr. Hubbard. Yes. Nuclear physicist. Exactly. And he has claimed these things about himself, that these things are proven. So by the time you get to the upper levels of Scientology, they literally tell you that you are curing illnesses, as he does in Dianetics. But mm. people continue to say, well, it's faith. It's not faith. He's, they're selling this. They're, these things are not just give whatever you can. These are preset prices. Mm. The man sets himself up. As, as somebody who is a scientist who basically went to medical school, uh, amongst other things, like you said, and people, Scientologists, believe that this man knows what he's talking about. And, and, and very oftentimes when people get to the top of Scientology, the, the bridge um, called Operating Thetan 8, OT8 for short, um, they, they usually uh, find out that they that they're dying of an illness that, that they could have possibly prevented or um, cured, and uh, they often leave, even without all of that. They, they realize that at the end of this whole thing, that this was all a lie, because at the OT8 level, basically you're told that was all bullshit that you did. You made yeah. it all up. Yeah, it, it's an in- incredible and fabulous journey in the, the nastiest sense of the word fabulous it's a fable it's it's a fabulism it's a series of lies it was never a science i interviewed the guy who was with ron hubbard when he wrote the book dianetics a guy called don rogers whose appendix stayed in the book right into the 1980s and he said uh, when he was commissioned to write dianetics the modern science of mental health he turned to me and he said you know hypnosis is not very popular we're going to have to find another way to do this so there was no research prior to the writing of Dianetics, Modern Signs of Mental Health. He was hypnotizing people, putting them into trance. They were getting spontaneous remission from whatever was wrong with them for a few days or weeks, and then it came back. So all of his original supporters fell away because right. their asthma, their arthritis, whatever was wrong with them, of course, came back, as it does, sadly, after most forms of faith healing. And all he did was he grabbed hold of a technique that had been used by Josef Breuer and then by Freud and relabeled it Dianetics. And you can find that technique in the Worcester, Massachusetts lectures published before the First World War by Sigmund Freud, where he explains, you know, the whole thing of counting backwards and repeating words to people. It's all in there. And he then says the problem with this technique is it doesn't make people better. It does make them more dependent upon the counsellor. Which is what Scientology is, exactly, because you... Because independent of the of the organization, which I think a lot of like I've come to the realization that some people that I know in Scientology should actually stay in Scientology. Because <laughs> no, I and I don't mean to be funny because I actually realized they couldn't deal with life. They couldn't actually operate in the real world. They need people to tell them how to think and what to do. And because it's devastating when you leave. I don't care how long you've been in. 
But if you've been in most of your life in a in a bad relationship, a dependent, uh, you know, a, an abusive relationship, it, it it is devastating. Regardless of what you received, it's what you know, and but, there's comfort in that, right? There's some comfort in that. So what, what what you're saying is that that there are a lot of people in this world who are obedient, and there are people in this world who demand obedience. I use the word authoritarian for such people, and the the thing is that. I would say that there are other cults they could belong to that are also authoritarian that would do them a lot less harm than Scientology. So, you know, there are all sorts of mild versions of cult out there. Sure. That, and that, that won't harm you. The best thing is actually to face the real problem, which we all have, which is how obedient we are. Right. And <laughs> right. go out and grab a copy of ex Scientologist Ira Chaleff's wonderful book, Intelligent Disobedience. Um, which really does ask those questions about why we want to be obedient and how bad it is for us. But I agree with you. Probably two thirds of the population are obedient. They, they, you know, they will follow a leader and do what they're told. And I believe in democracy. I believe that's a really bad thing. You know that we need to learn how to think and behave independently and become grown ups. That's that's how I think of it. You know, right? Agreed. Um, rather than being children led around by a a fake like right. Ron Hubbard. I agree. So back to the independent movement. So the, yes. o- the only two points I wanted to make about that, John and Mike, mm-hmm. is that it's, it was, it's the money. So you're not allowed, they don't want to lose any kind of income. And if you're an independent movement, you're not giving any of that money to Scientology and here's the more important, so, so it's money, it's, it's what Mike said. The other important part is that Scientology practice outside of the organization loses control. And once they lose control, they've lost everything. Because yeah. if you have an independent movement, you have people thinking for themselves, you have them looking on the internet, you have them talking to people about Scientology, you have them watching news outlets, you have them just being free to talk to and be friends with whoever they want, friend, you mm. know, connected to family members who want to help them and say, hey, I just want you to look at this information on Scientology. Hey, you should go to the police with what happened to you, with your rape, with being molested as a child in Scientology. And so you're free to do those things when you're even practicing Scientology outside mm. of its control. Because again, I just want to remind everybody, Scientology is an everyday mandatory activity for parishioners, not just for people who are employed there. Us parishioners will require to come into Scientology every day for two and a half hours minimum. And if we were working, we had to make up the time on the weekends or when we had a vacation. We had to make up those two and a half hours by the end, you know, for the week. So we had to make up that time. So every day they have a form of control on you and they put you on their lie detector test uh, meter. I mean, and they ask you, have you looked at anything? Have you talked to anyone? If you get sick, they send you into an interrogation. Are you talking to anybody looking at anything? And they are constantly, constantly on you. If there's an independent Scientology movement, 
There's no control of information. And I think that's the most important point. Don't you think, Mike? Well, I, th- I think that there that, yes. And I think that that has another effect, which is uh, sort of the, really the same thing, but just a slightly different way of looking at it, which is that control is exercised in Scientology very, very heavily. And Scientology, unlike a lot of other uh, organizations, religious organizations, or whatever you want to call them, is 100% fundamentalist. But most, most organizations have a fundamentalist arm to them or a, a part that is like on the fringes that are the fundamentalists. They're the people that will fly a plane into the World Trade Center or blow up a bus in, in Tel Aviv or whatever with a bomb strapped to them. Those fundamentalists are not mainstream Muslims. Mm-hmm. In Scientology, everybody is a fundamentalist. You mm-hmm. are required to be a 100% dedicated, committed, brainwashed Scientologist. We'd rather have you we'd rather have you dead than dead. incompetent and incapable. We'd rather like this is the the mantra of Scientology and this control is there's us and then there's nothing in between. We're it or there is nothing. And what the independent movement did was make a sort of a halfway house that people went, hmm, I hate what's going on here, but I don't want to lose my eternity. Oh, I can probably salvage my eternity by going to the independent movement. And droves of people left the, the... strict controls of Scientology because they thought that there was a kind of gentler way. And that was extraordinarily damaging to the organization of Scientology. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the formation of David Mayo, the former big, big honcho of Scientology, uh, you know, auditing technology and and the the expert that had been the personal uh, counselor for L. Ron Hubbard, his departure and the formation of the the independent movement for real at that time in the eighties is, in my view, the beginning of the decline of Scientology as a uh, power-based organization. Right. And it started slipping away, and then very shortly thereafter, the internet came along, and then it really started to go into a decline, and it has not recovered since. But that halfway house concept, which is the same thing you're saying, Leah, about control, that halfway house concept was very, very big in the 80s. And... As John can attest, the Religious Technology Center, David Miscavige's organization, was absolutely obsessed with shutting this down, shutting down these little organizations that had grown up because it wasn't just David Mayo. There were other ones in other parts of the world and squashing them, literally. They were to be destroyed because 
they were a threat to the control of Scientology over its people. Yeah, and the loss of control ultimately means loss of revenue. Yes. Right. It all goes hand in hand. These things are all like, we're talking about them as if they're different things. They're, They're intertwined and integrated and they can't be separated. Right. So John leaves and John starts posting what? I just started asking people what had happened to them. And I I went and interviewed people. I I mean, in terms of this conversation, one of the first people I contacted was Cyril Vosper, who'd for 14 years been in Scientology, knew Hubbard, and had written a book called The Mindbenders, which was an international bestseller. It sold 108,000 copies in the late 60s. So I contacted him and said, hey, you know, there's this form of Scientology now that's not controlled by the organization, you know. Uh, come along and talk to me. And I got this wonderful letter back from Cyril, who I later came to know very well. And he said, I don't think that Scientology can work outside a fascist organization. And it was the first time I'd heard the word fascist applied to <clears throat> Scientology, which is, after all, a totally non-democratic organization. Right. Um, and I think there's some truth to it, that the independent movement, uh, Mr. Justice Leighty, ruling in the famous case in July 1984 in the High Court in London over um, the custody of two children, he said the independent movement is a halfway house. He used exactly those words. And he, he'd realised that for many people, I think for most people, they'd, they'd, as with me, I had some auditing for a few months afterwards. But because I was not in the organisation, I was able to say, you know, I, I think that I've been suppressed by Ron Hubbard. I think <laughs> that's what Scientology is. It, it's becoming, you know, one of his body thetans, becoming a part of his crazed psyche and doing you know you become self-determined according to him by doing exactly what he tells you to do which doesn't quite work for me and the independent movement is still out there it's quite big in russia and in germany um probably bigger than the course movement which yeah, is right. down to about twenty-five thousand people now i think in the International worldwide association of scientologists a tiny little thing it's never been mm-hmm. that big it's always puffed itself up mm-hmm. but about half the membership left between 82 and 84. Many of us went into the independence, and most of those people then cult hopped into other groups and some nasty groups like Avatar grew out of that at that time. There are hundreds of uh, splinter groups from Scientology starting in 1950. Um, there are literally, we counted 200 in 1993, 200 groups and it penetrates all of the New Age movements. It became involved with the Church of I Am, Ramtha. It became involved with Dr. Peebles and various channeling movements. Um, it's gone everywhere. And it's gone with various of Hubbard's ideas, which people don't get over. For me, I left this whole thing in 96. I'd, I'd had 12 years of being harassed by fine people like Mike here. And it was on a daily basis. There was always something going on. I was being sued. I was being followed. Well, let's. I want to go back. I want to go back to the moment where you start to become a problem for Scientology, and then I want Mike to explain what is the internal conversations. When does somebody like John land on the fair game list of Scientology uh, with what he's doing, and what are the conversations, Mike, that are happening about John, and then what is happening to John? Well, when does he land on the fair game list? Yeah. I, I, I guess, John, that 
October the 18th, 1983, the, the night that I hosted the first public meeting of ex-Scientologists in East Grinstead. There were two members of the Guardian's office um, at the door taking our names as we went in. We were on the list from that point. I was harassed from go. that point. Yeah. The day so Mike, that I, the so Mike, day when that did I he land? my resignation. When did he, but when subsequent did he... to that, then you uh, became sort of um, – because you lived in East Grinstead, for one thing, yeah. you were always a, 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 a pain in the ass, to put it mildly, that nobody ever likes in, in OSA or Religious Technology Center to have the SPs living right nearby. And mm. so, and because of that, in part, you and Ron Lawley were both in East Grinstead and both therefore uh, sort of got a lot of the brunt of the efforts to shut down mm. your activities because it was so easy. You were so, yep. you were so accessible. It mm. made you easy targets. Yep. And so Mike, you, what is the know, conversation? They, they come to you. There's a, like an OSA meeting, an RTC meeting by David Miscavige or who, Who's involved in this conversation? Is it a meeting of like, so there's this guy, these two men, and they're SPs, and this is what we want to do. Here's the game plan. What what happens? Well, well, I can only assume what happens uh, in that because at that time in 1983, this was all the domain of Religious Technology Center. And in fact, it was back in the days of Jesse Prince and Vicki Asnerant. And they were being dictated to by David Miscavige. For and who sure. are those? Who are those two people that you just mentioned? Vicky Asnaram was the former head of Religious Technology Center. The Before David Inspector General. Oh, right. this is and this is like the big the the big wigs of David Miscavige's organ personal uh, organization, right, Mike? Yes, although he okay. had not he had not taken over. Oh, this is Hubbard. Oh, I get it. This was being run. Religious Technology Center was being run by Vicki Asnaran, the Inspector General, and Jesse Prince, her Inspector General MAA, or Deputy Inspector General. He was both. And they were receiving instructions from Annie Broker who was with Hubbard off in hiding in his Bluebird bus. Yep. But on the day-to-day -day activities of the Religious Technology Center, David Miscavige, who at that time had moved into author services and created the literary agency for L. Ron Hubbard as a sort of a guy's cover to give... Um, a way of Hubbard controlling Scientology through this for-profit, you know, non-religious uh, literary agency where, that, where huge amounts of money would be <laughs> passing out of the religion this is a into whole, the pockets uh, this of the is author. A, you know? a whole subject that we could get into in great detail at some point. But let's do it. David yeah. Miscavige was controlling the Religious Technology Center directing the activities because David Miscavige and Author Services were sp was responsible for establishing what was known as an all-clear for L. Ron Hubbard to be able to come out of hiding and back into the world of Scientology. And the all-clear... 
about 300 suits pending against him around right. the world. And Miscavige's immediate job in the all-clear unit, which is where he started his power grab from, was to make sure that Hubbard could come out and walk on the street again. And I'd just like to point out that he failed completely in that mission. You know, Hubbard Absolutely. was never able to see the light of day again. Right. And of course, part of the all clear was to take care of the, quote, squirrels. And squirrels is the Scientology term for those who are practicing Scientology outside of the authorized organization, which included John Atack and Ron Lawley and David Mayo and and uh, Robin Scott and a bunch of these people. Steve Bisbee. Steve Bisbee. Uh, yeah. There's a whole bunch of these people yeah. who were involved. And in fact, this um, got even worse when Robin Scott went to Denmark and dressed up in a Sea Org uniform. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going to correct this story at this point. Robin Scott okay. stood outside and stood watch <laughs> while Morag Belmain and Ron Lawley okay. in, in uniforms went into the organization and got material. Robin just stood watch. He then shopped them all when Jesse Prince went over and talked with him. Jesse is such a persuasive man that Robin Scott confessed everything and dumped them all in in trouble. I spent 10 years working on that court case for Ron Lawley. And we won the case because I knew that if we put the right material in, Scientology would never go into court. And sure enough, on the, the morning of the, the trial, they dropped the case. But you know, Robin Scott was not active there and, and he's... You know, he is somebody who annoys me. I saved his bacon. I spent 10 years doing that. Um, but yeah, well, he, he, anno he, was, he annoys he was, me too. He's, still he's around, one of these people you know, that, that no matter what you do or say, he's never, never satisfied that you have somehow made contrition to him for whatever past indiscretions. Well, he he was shout, were. Shouting, shouting at me because I, in July 84, I, I pointed out to him that two of his guests at his place, Cander Craig in Scotland, had come to me independently and said, you know, he says horrible things about you at the dinner table. And I'd taken him aside politely and I was saying this to him and he said, how dare they breach my confidence? And at that very moment, his wife, Adrienne, walked up behind him and said, have you thanked John for getting you out of prison in Denmark yet? And he said, oh, no, uh, thanks, John. So, you know, and yeah. then, as I say, spent 10 years getting him off the, the charges that the RTC brought against him. But so it goes. But Pers back, personal back. moment of passion there. Sorry about that. No, I, we get, listen, we totally get it. As people who get, uh, you know. Casually. They also owe me 37 and a half thousand pounds that they didn't pay me for that case. So if Ron Lawley and Robin Scott are, are listening, I'd still like to be paid for that. There you go. Good for you. As you should be. Yeah. There's their chance, you know. Yeah. But, okay. But so, this, so this go ahead, Mike. This became a massive problem because this was the leak of the Ned for OT's material. So this is they the confidential. Went, they went in and pretended to be uh, Sea Org members on a mission and got the materials and walked out with them. Literally. Wow. They walked out with the with the, the knots materials and then they were distributed and this resulted in massive litigation mm -hmm. against David Mayo and the aforementioned Frank Gabode and various other people. And this became a huge, huge uh, deal mm -hmm. through the, the late 80s and into the 90s and the litigation went on forever. And the you ask, what's the conversation? The conversation that happens when things like that occur is 
Okay, so how are we going to get a three-channel handling done on every one of these people to d get them either put in jail, in uh, to shut up for however they get shut up, or get them incarcerated in a mental institution, or... And this is what Scientology is engaged in simply because people are posting and revealing what the upper levels of Scientology are because, mm -hmm. again, this would mean that people would have access to it and would be leaving Scientology going, well, I don't want to work my whole life for this shit if this is what it is. Right. I mean, exactly right. I mean you're not thinking that, Mike, as you're as you're uh, attempting to destroy someone's life. What you're thinking as a Scientologist is what L. Ron Hubbard says, which is if people are exposed to the confidential upper levels of Scientology without be being checked. properly set up for it, those levels, they will literally die. Correct. Yeah. And you're also thinking that these people are seeking to destroy man's only salvation. Right. Yep. So it's not Literally. that you're thinking you want to destroy people like John just to do so. You really believe in your heart, like you were talking about a fundamentalist mentality, an extremist mentality, that literally people will die. And he is barring, and people like him are barring the road out for people's eternity. Yeah, for all yes. of mankind. Yes. And yes. and this is what this is what people have a difficult time understanding is that you convince yourself or are convinced that the the life of one person compared to mankind. the salvation of all of mankind is an irrelevance is an unimportance, is something that uh, should be sacrificed to save everyone. You know, Hubbard has this whole thing where he says, look, if a vaccine saves 1% uh, of the people, uh, you know, kills 1% of the people but saves 100, that's a good thing, right? Well, yes, that's a good logical conclusion. But if you then take that and say, well, if Scientology saves 100% of mankind and you have to kill off 1% in order to have the 100% be saved, that's a good deal, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. the, the assumption is that Scientology is all good and will, in fact, save mankind. Mm -hmm. That part, nobody like gives a second thought to because right, Hubbard right. said it. But right. that's so exactly what the equation is yeah. that happens in Scientology and in the mind of Scientologists. And, right. you know, we just saw it recently, uh, you know, Tony Ortega posted that success story from the superpower, <laughs> and I then wrote an article about it, about <coughs> the idea that the enemies of Scientology, antisocial personalities, or as John so astutely pointed out, the anti-Scientologist, the anti-Scientologist is an anti-social personality. That is an SP. That is an enemy. Those people dying is cause for celebration, literally. In the minds of fundamentalists, i.e. all Scientologists, that is cause for celebration. And that is how the 
the absolutely most dedicated zealots of Scientology who are Sea Org members, and out of the Sea Org members, the most dedicated zealots of the Sea Org members are those who are in Religious Technology Center. That is how they view dealing with someone like John. That's how I view dealing with someone like John. He, you were, I, I was polite to John to the extent that it was necessary only. Hmm. Meaning, well, so it, yeah, it, but if I, want- I, if I could have walked into the room and spat on him and thought that that was, I was going to get away with it, that's what yeah. I would have done. Yeah. So what I want to know is what are the type of activities uh, that we we were doing to John? Like what were we doing? We could, were could bringing lawsuits. Could I just pick up a yeah. point there, which yeah. is that if you look at any genocide, you know, in Nazi Germany and Cambodia and Rwanda and East Timor, the people who are being killed are always viewed as vermin, rats, fleas, lice. You you cease being human. You so with Scientology. You're fair gamed because you're seen as being some kind of beast, some kind right. of evil monster, some chimera mm-hmm. that's going to harm all of mankind. So Mike said that that when he met me in ninety four, ninety five, whenever it was, he thought I was a perfectly pleasant and sociable human being, personable human being. But he was there to destroy me because I was the enemy of humanity. And sure. you know, I'd like to point out I've often been called an anti Scientologist. I'm the only pro-Scientologist in the world. I'm a guy who gave his adult life to helping people who've been damaged by this thing, you know, no matter what the cost. I'm anti-Scientology. I'm pro-Scientologist. But this view, this black and white thinking of, you know, there are these evil people in the world and they're evil because they say that L. Ron Hubbard is not telling the truth. And there's the conflict because you can find in the works of L. Ron Hubbard many places where he contradicts himself and demonstrates that he is indeed a liar. But where you try and bring that to a Scientologist, that they get stuck in a trap. Sorry, to return to no. the point of, of, of the pro type of program, Mike, that would be run against somebody like me. I think that's uh, where we where we got to. What yeah. what the steps would be to to make me lose my mind, to get me in prison, to get me to commit suicide, to destroy all of the relationships I had with the people around me. Which, by the way, Scientology was very effective at doing. You know, I was sued by my best friend. You know, my marriage fell apart. My health was destroyed. Wow. Uh, all all because of fair of, game? Of this practice. Yeah, because of this practice of fair game? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And in, and in the and end, all I had left was, was my family, my, my brothers, my mother, and one of my nephews. I, I had friends who were attacking me. I had friends who were writing affidavits, who were, no, they'd not been involved in Scientology for 10 years and more. But there was still this influence. In 93, I talked out the head of OSA's investigation department in the UK, and she told me that she had four agents in my personal life, including my driver, and she had a fifth one in training, and that every day they ran an operation against me. And you find out that Nasty little rumours are being put around. You know, you're accused of rape and child molesting and drug dealing and all of these kind of things. So that I went from a position where in East Grinstead, the two local newspapers were both publishing stories that, that I was working on. 
And then it all turned around and suddenly, you know, the police were coming to me for help and then that turned around. Gradually, Scientology got pressure in there, got editors fired, got people pushed aside so that the, the friendship network that I'd created, by being honest and truthful, was destroyed and my personal life was you know, invaded and crushed. My children were disconnected from at school. You know, there, there were all sorts of horrible pressures that came out of Scientology with the idea, I think, that you'll become so unstable under this amount of pressure. And most people do. There's a guy called Neil Duddy, who was an Anglican vicar who ended up committing suicide after stories about him having, um, you know, rent boys and drugs in his house, which are completely untrue. We're running a scurrilous news rag called the News of the World. He took his own life, you know, and, and that you know, when you look at it, that kind of stress is put upon people. And you guys know about this because you've experienced this kind of stress in your own lives as a consequence of taking the extraordinarily brave stand that you have taken against this pernicious organisation. So my, I mean, I'm just like, I'm still speechless when I hear this. So this is considered a success story, right? These are success stories hmm. for OSA. Yeah. The Office of Special Affairs, uh, which again, want to point out, there's no real religion that has a department solely dedicated to destroying people as Scientology does. So the list just gets keeps getting stronger, I hope, in all of your minds of there is no connection between a real religion and Scientology. It's not. Literally. It's not a religion. It's never been no. a religion. No, but that, but people that's go. Oh, that's a discussion know, so we can have for an hour some other time because it's one of the things that I researched in tremendous depth. Hubbard put forward the idea of a religion um, because he thought it was a way of defending from the um, medical authorities. He'd been sued for practicing medicine without a license in New Jersey. And a way of getting around that was to say, when I say I can raise people from the dead and cure cancer and leukemia and asthma and arthritis and anything else, those are religious claims. Right. And by the way, right. they're not genius, truthful claims, they're genius religious claims. Is, you know? Genius in doing so, because he's absolutely right. And that's how they've gotten away with the what they've gotten away with uh, yeah. by by receiving tax exemption. But anyway, yeah. so my- And, and th- getting tax-exempt guys- dollars to harass people. I mean- how yes. how perfidious is that, you know? Again, something the IRS could be doing um doing something about, but they're Very apparently too busy yeah. going after the 27 average. Twenty-seven years later. Yeah. yeah, right. So so Mike, <laughs> but this is a these are success stories in the eyes of the Office of Special Affairs and Dave Miscavige and, and quite frankly, every Scientologist when you destroy people's lives, when they're committing suicide, when they don't have a pot to piss in because they're being sued by Scientology. This is all part. This is all being cheered and celebrated, right? Oh, absolutely, this, absolutely. Yeah. That is the that is the ultimate uh, accomplishment of the Office of Special Affairs, and what they are judged on is dismissed attackers. And the definition of dismissed, which is pretty euphemistic, is they are, have been utterly destroyed. They have gone. They are no longer around for whatever reason. They're either turned and become uh, uh, usable assets like a Marty Rathbun, or they are literally dead, or they have been entirely discredited and dispowered so that they have 
no ability to accomplish anything, or they've been paid off. Like like a Vicki Asneran, who was, like you mentioned earlier, she was an executive in Scientology. And there's a there's a, a, a legal document that you should probably post, Mike, where, where Vicki admits to crimes that she committed on behalf of Scientology. And, you know, Vicki has just gone off to live her life in peace, um, not speaking out, not doing anything. Having right? received, I think well, that she, got, they, she got a bunch used, of money. Uh-huh. Yeah, they they used to just hand out money, and then when they people like Jerry Armstrong kept on talking because they felt it was their legal right, they started giving a monthly salary. I was offered because I'm an artist. I, I was offered um, by a guy called Greg Ryerson that Scientology would buy paintings from me through an agent every month, and as long as you keep quiet, and I'm, I imagine that. Marty Rathbun is in this situation. As long as you keep quiet, you get your monthly check. I said, no, thank you. I I was a little more rude than that, I must admit, but we are on air, so... Um, oh, that's okay. I, you can say. Oh, you, don't worry. Say yeah. fucking and, and everything. They, like people love it. They they complain when I don't know if they love it. But I, I, mean, I still yeah. have the recording of the conversation from 1994, I think it was, and I told him to fuck off. I, you know, there was no way that I was gonna. My silence was going to be bought. It wasn't going to happen. I mean, it's what Mike, what you were asking a few months later that that I should go silent, and I'd right. be paid to do that. And I I walked out of the the meeting because. I, I knew that I'd been wrong-footed when I went into the meeting because my lawyer had said, we don't talk unless there's a quarter of a million pounds on the table. I said, you could have asked me before <laughs> telling them that, you know, and they didn't put any money on the table at all. The table was completely blank except for a few glasses of water. So I said to them, what are your ranks in the sea organisation? And they refused to tell me, like this was privileged information. But I think the the understanding was that if I couldn't get that much control of the meeting... I had to go. And so that was our meeting lasted about seven minutes, as I recollect, Mike. And then you went yeah. off to Trent Bridge to look at the cricket ground, exactly. which is your real intention, <laughs> your other intention in traveling to Nottingham to see the cricket pitch. <laughs> you, you were namby pamby panty waist dilettante, really, weren't you, Mike? Admit it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Clearly. The cricket. Clearly. Yep. But, John, yep. how did you survive this uh, awful campaign by Scientology? Uh, well, how did you, how did I'm you survive go with, it? With, with Paulette Cooper on that one, my good friend Paulette, who, who said, um, you don't. Um, once those marks are made upon you, they'll always be there. So whenever I get a manila envelope, I think it's a writ. And it's you know 20 years ago since the last case was, was dropped against me. Whenever I see my answer phone blinking, I think it's going to be a lawyer calling me up. So... But the thing is, I don't have post-traumatic stress disorder. I have been assessed for it long since. But there are things that will always remind you. So I think it was pig-headedness was was the main thing for me, that I realised after nine years that I had innocently contributed positive energy to an organisation that was evil. It was one of the most devastatingly corrupt, destructive organisations in the world, because it's methods of brainwashing, to use the word that L. Ron Hubbard used when he tried to sell them to the Kennedy administration, it's ways of making slaves, as he said in the 1952 lecture. These, these techniques are more effective than any other form of mind control, you know, exploitative persuasion, manipulation ever devised. 
Scientologists, you know, you leave the Krishnas or the Moonies, a few months later, you'll be okay again. With Scientology, you won't. Um, I mean, as, as you said in your wonderful book, Troublemaker, you can take the girl out of Scientology, but you can't take Scientology out of the girl. It, you can't because it's built in a series, you know, this clever way of trapping you inside the thinking. So that even when you've lost the words, the loaded language of Scientology, the concepts will remain, which is why after 17 years away, I came back in 2013, um, terrified of what was going to happen to me. But I started writing for Tony Ortega to say Scientology is systematic implanting. Right from the first moment with training routines, you, your control is being taken away from you. And I want to, if, if we could just talk about that for one minute, training routines for everybody at home is, is the Scientology turn, starts out, it doesn't start out like, hey, we believe in body thetans and we believe in UFOs. You know, we, it doesn't start out that way. It starts out with basic, everyday morals, ethics. You are, you know, in control of your own life, and you got relationships. Your, yeah, like you know, to help you to get over, uh, help you in business, to help you with finances. And these are little courses that you can take, and they're again, they're. $35, $85, you know, it starts out very small. And then when you start getting more and more into the, the mandatory, the mandatory bigger courses, then you start talking about $300, $800. And you start getting into the thousands of dollars services. Then you start getting into the, the more advanced auditing, which is their counseling. And it's thousands of dollars for 12 hours of auditing. And so it starts out harmless and things that people go, yes, I, I can agree with that. It's very right. Mike, it's very, some of it is helpful in the beginning, right? Like it teaches you how to communicate, right? Like helpful in that people are in there going, well, my son can't uh, communicate. Well, he looks down at the floor. He gives one word answers. He shrugs, whatever. Right. My, my teenage son or daughter, right. Which is all teenagers basically and pretty much yeah. you do this you, they sign them up for this communications course right and then all of a sudden the person is being taught to look in your eye look at somebody's eyes when you're talking say that you've heard them by acknowledging them right so you're like this is pretty helpful because my son or daughter or even an adult very shy doesn't look at now all of a sudden they're looking at people so I'm being, I, I shouldn't have said that, John, because I was lead, trying to lead you down a path and, and our listeners are better, but you're absolutely right because I don't want to take it out of context. It's seemingly helpful, but the yeah. truth of the matter is those things can be taught and should be taught through other means because Scientology is slowly starting the hypnosis that this is all part of their process of hooking you into this kind of hypnotist i don't i what, what do you call it Hyp, hypnot what, what do you call it mike um it's not hypnosis it's not hypnosis it is, it is in, hypnosis in, in, i guess it is yeah. i guess it is you're, being, so, you're okay. being put into a hypnoid state right from the beginning you're being made more suggestible if you look at that thing of the shy teenager looking at the floor what they're taught to do is not look somebody in the eye to use scientology's own term they're taught to confront people right you're right now in real terms, that means staring at somebody. And that is what is called the predator stare by psychologists. What you're taught to do is to dominate other people. 
as a communication strategy. Now, if you think about it's taught to military people, it's taught to police, that you stare at somebody. Uh, it's also held to be a characteristic of psychopaths. It's a way of controlling people and bullying people. It's not a way of developing relationship and communicating. It's a way of, and then when you get to the upper indoctrination training routines, you abs- actually physically control people. And so, yes, been- but also even prior to that, John, I want to say in, in one of these communications drills, pretty early on, you learn a drill, TR0 bull bait. And this is where you teach your, your, your person um, to accept and dole out abuse. And, yes. and, and it, it goes, it's abusive, it's sexual. And if you cry, if, if, if a grown man is talking about your vagina or your tits or how, you, how much they want to have sex with you, if you have any reaction to that, you are what's called flunked. And that means that you failed the test. And part of the drill is to continue to go over the same thing over and over and over again and even make it worse so that the person has no reaction to being talked to that way. And so, and then the drill is turned around. So the, that you're taught to that if you react to any of that, by the way, which is necessary, reaction is necessary for survival. Mm-hmm. The, you are taught to not react to those things. So you're training children, you're training people to be abused and you're training people to be abusers, which we all were and mm-hmm. taught to be. And, and, and you're training people not to show their emotions, correct. to share their emotions. And then you train them to have fake emotions by using the tone scale. It, it gets worse and worse very rapidly. Yes, yes. So, so I, I, I agree with you, which is why I wasn't really down with the independent, uh, because I was like, so are you teaching people TRs? Are you teaching people that anything that happens to them is their fault? Are you teaching people through auditing that if they were raped or molested or beaten, that they had done it themselves and that's the only reason why they're upset, mm-hmm. either this lifetime or a former lifetime? I mean, that's why it was hard. Like, where do we draw the line here that yeah. what is pure, quote-unquote, Scientology? Because it's all, it's all dangerous. It's all dangerous. Yeah, I mean, Ron Hubbard's oldest boy, Nibs, who for seven years was his deputy in the 1950s, Mm -hmm. said very succinctly, um, Scientology does not work as Ron Hubbard says it works. It works as Ron Hubbard intends it to work. And it really does. It's a way of enslaving people psychologically and in the C organization physically, working a 90-hour week for a few dollars. Uh, If you do have children not being allowed to see them, eating beans and rice diets for months on end. It's it's a deplorable situation. When you look at Hubbard at the other end of this, there's a point where he he, he banned toilet roll for the, for the crew. They weren't allowed to have because they weren't producing enough money. When he dies, he leaves $648 million, all of it taken from Scientology. He, he had no other source of income. So we have this guy who's basically treating his staff a scum, and raking in all of this cash. I mean, I, I've met, interviewed so many people who took him briefcases full of money. And, it, you know, that when he was in the Bluebird um, bus, he had stacks of these attache cases full of hundreds of thousands of dollars just in case he had to run off quickly somewhere. I mean, he is, it, originally my book 
Blue Sky was was called Hubbard Through the Looking Glass because you realise <laughs> everything is the opposite of what you've been told. This exactly. is not, you know, right. immortality for everyone and we're all going to make an ethical planet. This is one of the least ethical groups that has ever existed, you know. And the amazing thing is you can take somebody like my good friend now, Mike Rinder, and turn them into a weaponized empath. You can take somebody who is naturally empathetic, who's naturally kind and considerate, as I believe Mike is from my experience of him, and you can Oh, I thought you were going to say me. I thought you were going to say me. <laughs> and, and Leah is just the most astonishingly compassionate woman I've ever met. Like, now you're <laughs> exaggerating. That's too much. That's not believable. But, but that's what... It, it, was the, it was the empaths. It, it, they were the people who became the most dangerous people, not the people like Miscavige, who is quite evidently has a little bit of a problem um, emotionally and with his temper. The dangerous people are the empaths, and in Scientology you'll meet many of them. Uh, and they've been convinced that if they don't do this horrific act right now, then the whole agonised future of every man, woman and child, and child. on this planet will be in jeopardy. Um, yes, and you're referring and it, to one of the main, main policies that every Scientologist is, is, is forced to read over and over again in, in their Scientology work. career called Keeping Scientology Working um, yeah. Series 1. Do, do but, you notice yeah. that there's actually a subtle error in that sentence, that he, he doesn't say the whole future of every man, woman and child, he says the whole agonised future. So what he's actually saying is the future is going to be agonised no matter what we do in Scientology. It is said that psychopaths have a problem with grammar and Hubbard right. very often you know, makes a little slip with a word, which if you watch carefully, it's like when he talks about being crippled and blinded in my philosophy, he says with wounded with physical injuries to hip and back. Right. And you're going, is there some other kind of injury than physical? You know, <laughs> liars well, tend yes. to do this. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> but but John, here's my here's my last question for you because because I, I I really want people to hear this. Mm. You survived Mike Rinder. You survived the Guardian's office and and the Osas of the world. How yep. how? Uh, and I want people to know that because it's important to know that you can come out of this and and survive it and continue to fight. I mean the. the you would think that somebody like you would eventually just kind of say, I did the work, which you have, and I want to thank you for it. Uh, you did it many, many, mm, you, you put yourself and your life at risk. And uh, for me, honestly, thank you. I wish I had listened to you sooner, but I didn't. Um, but, but really, truly thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for that. Yes, of course. How have you survived it? I say I'm I'm a very stubborn person. Um, my parents were the most honest people I've ever met. You know, my father would not claim a single penny on his expenses that that you know wasn't. Due were to they him. were they Scientologists? Um, no, my my mum actually followed me into Scientology to see if it was going to be safe, and and was she was involved for eight years. And uh, one day somebody said to her because I'd started to make noise. Somebody said to her, "What will you do if John's declared suppressive?" And at that moment, she left Scientology. Oh, wow. She said, I'm in an organization that would even think about doing this. I'm not interested. My family is more important. But they were very honorable people. And I, I suppose I was infected with that. You know, I've got over it now. Um, I'm, you know, and thank you for the money for this interview, by the way. Um, but, but it, it, it just, I, 
it just had it just had to be i i couldn't and and it it became you know originally it was why did this happen who was hubbard what was going on so you know i worked i was russell miller's researcher for barefaced messiah which was based upon my book a uh, piece of blue sky but i couldn't get a publisher uh, right. <laughs> so i really got deeply into the biography of hubbard and realized you know what a confidence trickster he was but the thing that really kept me going was that i met over the course of the years i've been involved in the recovery of about 600 people directly who who you know are survivors of scientology with one of them that took 35 years to actually pull him out to the point where he looked at it and said this was a terrible abuse you know and he realized and in his case he had actually been sexually abused at the age of 15 by a scientology auditor you know that was his first contact with scientology and it took all those years to get that out but to to realize just how damaging it is and i couldn't walk away from that you know that and and again when it came back in 2013 i had two years which eventuated in the getting clear conference in toronto which is available on vimeo um where we completely deconstructed scientology you know we we took a toxicologist angela harris phd and she took apart what Hubbard had said about the purification rundown. And you realize it's just complete pseudoscience with no basis in reality. Right. It's actually caused a lot of harm to people along the way. Um, so for me, the drive was that I suppose that I was seeing change in other people who were coming out of Scientology. Uh, one of the nicest things that ever happened to me, I got a letter and it, it said, uh, you won't remember me. We spent an afternoon together 15 years ago. And she was right. I have no idea who this lovely woman is. And she said her life was a catastrophe because of Scientology. But that af- from that afternoon onward, she was able to put her life together. She had a happy marriage. It's 15 years later. She had children. She had a career. And she said that all comes from that afternoon together. So to have been that, that catalyst for somebody to, to get them their life back, you know, that's incredibly rewarding. I will make a boast. Uh, which I do do. Arnie Lerma, <laughs> the, the dear, crazy Arnie Lerma, when, when I asked him for a puff for the, the new edition of Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, he said, um, before the internet and safety and numbers, there was John Atak. And I guess that's kind of true. There was me, there was Lawrence Wallersheim and Bob Penny. Bob's not mentioned often enough. He was the guy that actually made the FactNet database. Brilliant guy. Um, and there's Jerry Armstrong. Now, Lawrence wanted to, to get something back because his life had been ruined. And he, in the end, got a lot of thin dimes. He got $9.2 million from Scientology. They did pay him, most of which went to his lawyers. But he had a motivation to be involved. And it took 20 years in the courts to get his money. Jerry had a motivation because they wouldn't leave him alone. <laughs> you know, He just wanted to go back to his mum in Canada and and not talk about it. He really did. And they just kept going after him, you know, um, at one point, in fact, trying to kill him uh, back in 1982. Um, for me, I don't really have a justification. I, it offended me that people were being harmed in this way. And, and that was enough, you know. And then later it was, you know, my happiness, as with anybody, depends a lot upon the thought that I've done some good in the world that I've helped people, you know. Well, you have, John. You, you. you really have. And and again, I want to thank you for what you've done over over 
the course of a long, long period of time. 37 years, yeah. Stand up to the monster and remain standing and remain good humored and remain willing to take that principled stand no matter what. And that's something that that is is incredibly admirable. And rare. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very, very rare. rare. You know, you, you share it with me now or whatever Elrond Hubbard's words were on RJ67. <laughs> um, and and what an amazing job you guys have done in, in really getting this out to the world. My hope is that the next project will be how do people get involved with this and why? Because the idea that there's some vulnerability, some weakness, it's just not it's true. Not, I've, I've spent right. most of my time since I left Scientology studying the methods of manipulation and exploitative persuasion. And everyday people, all sorts of people become involved. And the idea that we're invulnerable is what makes us vulnerable, I think. Then why do people stay involved? You know, what, what are the, the things around there? Why do people leave? And finally, and I think most importantly, how do people recover? And why is it that if, if they're not helped, that it can take decades for people to really get their heads out of this thing? For me, an afternoon with anybody... I've never had a situation in the last 37 years where somebody came to me and by the end of the afternoon, they hadn't changed their mind about Scientology and and changed the behaviours that Scientology had implanted into them, which is the real problem. I mean, you both know it. It took me about six months to stop staring at people, you know, after I left. It was like, this is a really bad habit, you know. (laughs) You know, the the funny thing is my daughter, you know, like I have a very bad habit of going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. And she goes, can you shut up and just let me finish my study? Like, it's such a, you know, from the training routines, right? For people to yeah. know that, you know, to keep talking, right? You're supposed to go, uh huh. And then what happened? And then what happened? Right. Mm. And I have such a bad habit of doing that. And you're right. It's like, but, but at the same time, um, you can take the Scientology out of the girl because if you're doing the right work, and I don't know if you, if uh, you've ever read this book, and I keep talking about it because I'm, I've been doing a lot of work in this area after being uh, talking about other things for many years. In my first years of therapy, I was almost like testing the therapist to see if Scientology was correct about you know this being ridiculous waste of time and money, right? You know, real therapy. But I, I was telling Mike about the betrayal bond. Mike, are you reading that, right, Mike? I read it. Oh, okay. I'm done with it. You did all the exercises in there, Mike, that it says, oh, Mike. Not a chance. <laughs> I listened anyway. to it. I didn't actually okay. read it. Well, that's why I said get the damn book. But anyway, <laughs> it might interest you, John, in the work that you're doing because it's really about doing the trauma work and how bonds are created with uh, your abuser and your primary caretaker. Trauma bonding. Which- I'm familiar with Judith Herman's primary work on this and um, Ronnie um, Janoff-Bullman, uh, her phenomenal book, Shattered Assumptions, where she talks about PTSD counselling and how to, you know, having been involved in this. But but uh, also, uh, I mean, an excellent book for anybody who's been involved in any authoritarian cult is Take Back Your Life yes. by Lalich and amazing. Tobias. Yes, amazing. Right? fabulous book yes thank you thank you thank you again john i think we've taken enough of your time we, again thank you for all that you've done and uh we're here well, let's do let's do this again Let, let's 
please pick some specific topics because I've spent far too much time swimming around in this stagnant pool finding these things out about Scientology and I'm very yes. happy to share them. You know? Please just yeah. uh, think about think about what part of Scientology you'd like to talk about. Like this is a subject that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> uh, so you pick it and let's discuss it offline and, and, and do it next time. Great. Yeah. Thank That'd you again. Fantastic. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you, John. We're here if you need us. Okay, honey. And thank you all for listening. Mike, we'll talk soon. Yes, ma'am. Love you. Love you, too. (laughs) Goodbye. Thank you, everyone.